Instead of trying to earn God's favor, which is what all religions seek to do in one form or another, Scripture teaches that God has graciously provided for our salvation in Jesus Christ. Welcome to the Radical with David Platt podcast, the latest sermons from teacher, author, and pastor David Platt delivered weekly. And in today's message from Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 through 30, Pastor David encourages believers to find their identity in the one who has died for their sins and provided for their peace with God. This same Jesus now empowers his people to walk in obedience to God. Here's David with a sermon titled, The Disciple's Identity, Part 1, You in Christ, from Matthew chapter 11. Here we go, Matthew chapter 11. We're going to study verses 28 through 30, but I want us to camp out or, or start all the way back in, in verse 25 just to get the context of what leads up to these words from Jesus. Matthew chapter 11, verse 25, at that time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and learned and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for this was your good pleasure. All things have been committed to me by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Verse 28, Jesus says, Come to me. All you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Father, we pray that you would help us to understand exactly what Jesus is saying to us here in this text. And we want to be so bold as to ask in the next few minutes, based on your word, you would radically transform our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Those three verses, Matthew 11, 28 through 30, I believe represent the... One of the most clear, one of the most powerful, one of the most compelling, one of the most beautiful pictures of Christianity the way Jesus designed it to be. At the same time, those same verses represent one of the most clear, one of the most powerful, one of the most forceful rebukes of what we have created Christianity to be. What I want you to see in this simple text of Scripture is two life-changing, all-important truths that arise from this text. And I mentioned, I've I'm, I'm tried to keep this, this picture of the notes simple because I want to give you what I'm going to call Christianity Explained. What does it mean to be a follower of Christ? Two simple truths based on Matthew 11, 28 through 30. Truth number one, Christianity Explained. We give up all we have to Jesus. We give up all we have to Jesus. Now, the dominant imagery in Matthew 11, 28 through 30 is the picture of a yoke. And a yoke, as many of you know, it's a heavy wooden bar that would be placed on an ox in order to allow that ox to pull something behind, a cart or plow. 
And sometimes a yoke would be used not just on one ox, but many times a, a, a yoke would be used with oxen. You'd have a shared yoke. Let me show you a picture up here on the screen that might give us a picture of that sort of thing where you basically got two, two places where, where oxen come together in a yoke. And what would happen is it's very common for you to have a yoke like this and you would have a stronger ox and a weaker ox that would be put together to pull something. And the stronger ox would basically carry the weight of the load, and the weaker ox would be enabled to pull that through the stronger ox. The stronger ox would have more strength, more experience, be more skilled in, in the commands of the master, be able to pull more, and the weaker ox would then be able to do more. So that's the picture. You've got the picture of a yoke that's kind of the dominant, image, dominant imagery in Matthew 11, 28 through 30. Now you bring that background into the context of this particular passage, and Jesus is speaking to a group of people, a group of Jewish men and women who had grown up in a, in a very strict, rigid religious system where they had the Old Testament law, all the laws of the Old Testament that you see, but on top of that, the religious teachers of the law had basically taken the Old Testament law and held people accountable to following that law, but then they'd taken about 600 plus other rules and regulations and put them on top of the law. And so what you had was a whole group of people, these Jewish men and women, who were overwhelmed, literally weighted down, burdened by all these laws that they had to follow. You had to keep up with. You had to measure up to. And constantly laws and regulations and rules and commands were being put in front of them. And that's what the teachers of the law would do. They knew the law backwards and forwards. And they held people accountable to following all of these different laws. Let me give you just a little bit of a glimpse. Turn me over to Matthew 23. I just want you to hear just Jesus talking about these teachers of the law. And I want you to see he actually, in verse 4, in Matthew chapter 23, uses the same word for burden or heavy load that he uses over here in Matthew chapter 11. Look at Matthew 23. We'll read the first four verses. Just listen to what Jesus says about these teachers of the law. He says, the Bible says, Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, the teachers of the law and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. So you must obey them and do everything they tell you. But do not do what they do, for they do not practice what they preach. They tie up, here it is, tie up heavy loads and put them on men's shoulders. Literally burdens on men's shoulders. But they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. So that was Part of Jesus' rebuke of the teachers of the law is they would take all these laws and all these rules and all these regulations and they would pour them out on the people. And as a result, all the people were weighted down by the load of all of these laws. And they never could feel like they measured up. They never could feel like they had done enough because there were always more rules and more regulations that they hadn't followed or they needed to follow better. They were constantly weighed down, weary, literally spiritually exhausted and burdened. Now, that was the picture in the first century. And when I read this text of Scripture, my biggest fear is that we in the church have a tendency to do exactly what the teachers of the law were doing in the first century. I think we have a dangerous tendency to pour on law after law, rule after rule for how you live out Christianity in our particular culture. You live according to this standard and that standard. And some of these standards are biblical and some of them are not biblical. But we put them out there and there are Christian cultural standards. We put them on each other. And it really opened my eyes a few months ago when we did that series on guilt and shame and fear. 
And I remember going out in the streets of Birmingham and asking people, especially when it came to guilt, I'd ask them, what comes to your mind when you hear the word guilt? And you know what many of them said immediately? Church. When I think of guilt, I think of church. I think of the feeling I get every time I'm in church, they would say. And I think the picture that we have all too often created is the picture of church is where you get the laws and the rules and the commands and the regulations poured out on you and you walk away feeling more guilty than you did when you came. And as a result, I think the church in many ways struggles under the weight of guilt. And our culture has tried to come up with all kinds of ways to come out from under that weight and to say, well, you're okay, doesn't matter. But that misses the point of what Jesus is saying here because the law is important. The law is God's. The law belongs to his Father. It's not the law isn't good. But in the church, we've missed out on the goodness of the law. And I I just want to remind you before we go any further that the whole purpose of Christianity is not to pour out law after law after law, rule after rule after rule, or regulation after regulation after regulation on us. The whole purpose of Christianity is to show us that we do not have to wear the weight of the law on our own. We don't have to carry the burden of the law on our own. That's what Jesus came to do. What do we give him? We give him the full weight of our sin. And ladies and gentlemen, When you trust in Christ, when you come to Christ, please hear this loud and clear. When you trust in Christ and you come to Christ, you no longer bear the burden of sin anymore. It has been nailed to a cross for all of eternity. You do not carry the weight of your sin. Psalm chapter 103, as far as as the east is from the rest, so far has God removed your transgressions, your sins from each other. Isaiah chapter 43, verse 25, God says to his people, I will remember your sins no more. What do we give to Jesus? We give him the full weight of our sin. And praise be to Jesus, he is able to handle it all. Now this in no way, please hear me, this in no way minimizes the seriousness of sin. This doesn't minimize the fact that we've broken the law. It doesn't minimize the seriousness of sin. No, it maximizes the beauty of the cross because all of the seriousness, the eternal seriousness of sin was put on Jesus Christ on a cross. He takes the full weight of our sin. Now, that's the starting point of Christianity We give him the full weight, burden of our sin, and he takes it upon himself. This is the starting point, but this is not where Christianity stops. What I'm concerned about when I study this text is that this is where many of us stop in our Christianity. In fact, I'm convinced the majority of us stop in our Christianity. We... We know and we believe that Jesus Christ died to forgive us of our sins. And so we give him the weight of our sin and we think that's Christianity. He takes the weight of our sin. But that's not all that Christianity is. That's not the only thing we give him. Because if we give him our sin, then what are we going to do the rest of our lives? We still struggle with sin. So how do you live this Christian life out? And this is where we've got to take a step deeper than the majority of us have taken. 
Christianity, giving up all we have to Jesus, is not just giving him the weight of our sin. Second, we give him, don't miss this, we give him our complete and utter inability to obey God. Our complete and utter inability to obey God. I know that complete and utter mean the exact same thing, and I almost added total and absolute and a few other synonyms in there. The point is this. Completely, utterly, absolutely, totally, you and I are unable to please God. Here's talking to a people who were weighted down by the law, and Jesus is not Don't miss this. He is not saying the law is a bad thing. The law is a good thing for Jesus. He said back in the Sermon on the Mount, I came not to abolish the law, but to do what? Fulfill it. Fill it out. The law is good. So the law is not bad. He's not saying, come to me and you don't have to worry about the law anymore. You don't even have to. You do whatever you want. That's the kind of Christianity many times we fall into. You hear people, I hear people all the time saying, Well, I'm free from the law because I'm a Christian. You're not free from the law. You're free for the law. We'll get to that in a second. We'll get to that in a second. But Jesus is not saying the law is not important. He's saying you come to me because apart from me, you cannot obey the law. And apart from me, you cannot please God. And the danger of contemporary Christianity is that we think we can. I'm convinced that the majority of us come to Christ, we give him the weight of our sin, but then we feel somehow obligated to now walk away and live this Christian life on our own in order to please God. And the truth of Matthew eleven twenty eight 28 through 30 is that we are completely and utterly unable to please God. Now you think about how we miss this. I'm convinced the way we most often define the Christian life is based on what we do. If you're a Christian, then you pray and you study the Bible and you, you share your faith and you're kind and you do this and that. And you, you don't do other things. You don't, you don't smoke and you don't use profanity. You don't do all the things the world does. And that's how you know you're a Christian, by doing those things. And the majority of us believe that God's pleasure in us is based on what we do or what we don't do. Let me say that one more time. The majority of us believe that God's pleasure in us is based on what we do or what we don't do. If we do enough, then God is pleased with us. But if we don't do enough and we keep failing miserable in our, miserably in our Christianity, then God is disappointed in us. And you see that somewhere along the way we've gotten the idea that God's pleasure in us is based on our performance before him. And ladies and gentlemen, the truth that we must come face to face with in this text, the truth that is at the foundation of all Christianity is you will never be able to please God with what you do. If you are, then Christianity is just another ethic 
and the world's religious systems to live by, and you do enough things, then you'll find pleasure with God, and that misses the whole point of grace. This is legalism at its core, and we think of legalism as this, this, oh, those are those people that don't go to movies and don't have TVs in their homes and think that any music that has a beat is of the devil. That's legalists. That's not legalism. Legalism is thinking that you can earn God's forgiveness, earn God's grace, or earn God's pleasure based on your performance, and it is not biblical. It's not biblical at all. We need to realize, please hear me, the religious man or woman in this room who gives him or herself to good works in order to please God is just as far away from God as the atheist is. What that means is it's possible to be in church every Sunday of our lives and do all the religious activity that is expected of us and do this and do that and do this and be just as far from God as the atheist is. Please, please hear me on this. This is so huge. Let me give you, let me give you an example, two scenarios, okay? One scenario, imagine you wake up in the morning, your alarm clock, you immediately jump up out of your bed and you are alert and ready to go. You immediately go into a quiet time where you have a good time in prayer and good time in Bible study and you get ready and you're off for the day and everything's planned out and everything is going well and you sense the presence of God and everything, you've got an extra skip in your step and everything is just going good. You're walking with God, you're enjoying communion with him all day long and you come near the end of your day and you have an opportunity to share the gospel with somebody else. Scenario number one. Now, scenario number two over here. The alarm clock goes off in the morning and you hit it. And you hit it again and again and again. And you snooze seven or eight times until quiet time is the last thing you're going to have this morning. And you wake up and you rush, get ready, and you're off. No time in prayer, no time in Bible study. You don't even think about prayer or Bible study. You don't even think about God. As a result, the whole day you feel a little disheveled and, and you don't have things going as they planned. And you, you've forgotten completely about the presence of God. The presence of God seems nowhere near your life. And you're going throughout just trying to get through the day from one thing to the next. And you're on your way home. And you have the opportunity to share the gospel with someone. Two scenarios. Let me ask you a question. In which of those scenarios do you think God is more likely to bless you as you share the gospel? Our tendency is to think, well, scenario number one, of course. But why would we even think that? Because even thinking that suddenly exposes this dark truth that has somehow lodged itself at the core of our Christianity that God's blessing is somehow based on our performance. And we think, well, he wouldn't bless that one as likely as he would this one. Why not? Well, because I'm not worthy. I haven't walked with him during the day. I haven't done this or that. That's why he wouldn't bless this one. All of a sudden, we're now assuming 
that God's going to bless over here because we're worthy and because we've walked with him, because we've done this or that. And we're thinking he's not going to bless me over here because I haven't done those things. This undercuts the very foundation of Christianity. God's blessing in our lives is never based on his perfor- or our performance. It is always based on his grace, period. That's the only reason he will bless in scenario one or scenario number two, based on his grace, not our performance, not how much we measure up. That's what Jesus is saying to these folks, that is, he's, he's freeing them up. It's not based on what you do. You can't measure up. You're not able to perform for God. So give him your complete and utter inability to do that. It was the curse of first century Judaism to think that you could earn God's pleasure through performance, and I'm convinced it's the curse of 21st century Christianity. We are like, you know those guys that used to be on TV that could spin all the plates at the same time? You know that guy? A lot of time on his hands. He gets all these sticks out, and he goes into the kitchen, he gets some plates, his wife not happy with him, and he starts spinning them around. He learns how you can spin one plate on this stick and one, one plate on this one and one plate on this one, and then all of a sudden, this one starts to wobble, and he runs back over there, and he starts spinning again. He goes from one to the next. He can get like five or ten plates spinning all at the same time. Is this not a picture of our Christianity? I'm going to pray. I'm going to get praying. Okay, I need to study the Bible. Okay, I need to share the gospel at some point in my Christian life. I got to do this at home. I got to do this at work. All of a sudden, that prayer plate's about to stop. Oh, let me get that back up. And we run from plate to plate. Don't you ever get tired? Don't you ever get tired? Maybe this is not the way Christianity was designed to be. Maybe the whole point of Christianity is for us to come and say, God, apart from you, all of these plates come crashing down. Everything comes crashing down. I can't do anything without you. We give him our complete and utter, total, absolute inability to obey God. You can't do it. I'm convinced this was robbing people's joy in the first century. They felt weary, spiritually exhausted, and burdened. And I'm convinced it's robbing, robbing joy in the lives of men and women all across this room who are still convinced, even as followers of Jesus Christ, that his blessing is based on our performance. Listen to what Ian Thomas said. When I read these words, it just convicted me this week. He said, I'm talking about some Sunday school teachers. I'm talking about some pastor in his pulpit. I'm talking about some missionary on the field. I'm talking about many ordinary, average, earnest Christians. They are wonderful people. You would love to meet them. They talk all the language of salvation and Listen to this, they mean every word they say. They're not hypocrites. Yet they are tired. Many of them desperately tired. They are overwhelmed with a sense of defeat and frustration and futility and barrenness. Story after story could be told of these men and women who bravely, doggedly, out of sense of duty, love and devotion go on and on and on, yet deep down in their hearts they are tired. Again and again they have gotten down by their bedside and cried out to God with tears in their eyes, God, you know how barren I am. You know how empty I am. You know how stale I am. You know it. And yet they don't know the answer. He continues, listen to this. This is the curse of Christendom. This is what paralyzes the activity of the church of Jesus Christ 
on earth today in defiance of God's word, God's mind, God's will, and God's judgment. Men and women everywhere are prepared to dedicate to God what God condemns, the energy of the flesh. There is nothing quite so nauseating or pathetic as the flesh trying to be holy. Ladies and gentlemen, when we come to Christ, we give him our complete and utter inability to obey God. We can't do it. So stop trying. Stop trying to keep all the plates in the air. Stop trying to win the battles that on our own we will face our entire lives and never win. Stop fighting the battles that Jesus Christ has already fought for you. He's already fought them for you. Stop dwelling and how much you fall short and start dwelling on how Christ has already taken the full weight of all your falling short upon himself. Stop believing when you come into a setting like this that somehow God is disappointed in you or not completely happy with you. When he looks at you and you trust in him, he takes the full weight of your sin, he puts it on his son on a cross when he looks at you, instead of being disappointed in you, he delights in you. Not based on one ounce, one shred of your performance, but based solely on the performance of Jesus Christ on your behalf. This is Christianity. We give up all we have to Jesus. Everything. It's not about what we bring to the table, it's about everything that he has already put on the table for us. We give up all that we have to Jesus. Have you given up the full weight of your sin to Jesus? And have you given him the complete and utter inability to obey him and please him? So what does he put on the table? This is where it gets good. Not that it hasn't been good, but it gets better. And we give up all we have to Jesus, and Jesus gives up all he has to us. Is that simple or what? Jesus gives up all he has to us. Jesus says, what does he say? I'll give you rest. He uses it twice. I'll give you rest. Later on, you'll find rest for your souls. We'll talk about that in a second. He says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. Now, this is really interesting. This is the part that has always confused me about this text. Because if the problem is I've got a burden on me, then why is Jesus offering to put another burden on me? Why does he want to put a yoke on me? Take my yoke upon you. I don't want something else on me, right? But, but remember back to the picture. Remember back to the picture of the yoke and oxen. And one ox being stronger, more experienced, more trained in the ways of 
Master, what he's inviting us is to come into the yoke with him. It's the weaker ox. It's the one who really doesn't bring much to the table. And he, he leads us. He guides us. He carries the load for us. This is the picture. Jesus gives up all he has to us. Now, what does that mean he gives us? Well, number one, he gives us full pardon for all our sin. Full pardon for all of our sin. Don't miss it. It's not that Jesus' standards were lower than the standards of the religious teachers of the law. In fact, they were higher than the teachers of the law. What did Jesus say? Matthew chapter 5, verse 48. You know, when it all boils down to it, Jesus said, Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Oh, okay, just perfection. That's all I have to have to know God. It's not that Jesus is lowering the standard here. He's raised the standard, perfection. Ladies and gentlemen, there's not one person who will ever walk into the gates of heaven that does not live up to that standard. It does not matter how many times you've been in church. It does not matter how great a father or mother you've been, how great a husband or a wife you've been. It does not matter how much money you have. It doesn't matter how great a life you've lived, how many humanitarian acts you did. If you don't live up to perfection, there's no way you're getting in. And that's the picture that Jesus is giving us here. Because when you come into the yoke with him, you join up with the one who is perfect. You see, this is, this is not a good text if all it does is show us that we can't measure up and we'll never be able to measure up. Thanks, Dave. Let's go home with that blessing. No, the beauty of this text is that the God of the universe became a man and took on flesh. The sovereign one over all creation was gentle and humble in heart. And he came to this earth, and you know what he did? He picked up the Old Testament law, and he carried it. And he fulfilled it completely. He never dropped it once. He was tempted in every way, but he never dropped it once. He was pressed in on every side, but he never dropped it once. He was weakened in everything the world could do to weaken him, but he never dropped it once. And as a result, when you and I stand before the Father in heaven, it will not be based on our perfection. The only way we enter into his presence forever is based on the perfection of Jesus Christ. When Jesus looks at the Father and says, this one's in the yoke with me. By the grace of Almighty God, he became a man, went to a cross, and bore the burden of the sin of the world, including yours and mine, so that he could rise with the authority of the Lord of heaven and earth and say to everyone who comes to him, you are not guilty anymore. You are pardoned forever. You're pardoned forever, ladies and gentlemen. Trust Christ. You are pardoned forever, for all of eternity. He gives us full pardon for our sin. And the result of that is, the, is peace with God. 
peace with God, everlasting peace with God. Romans chapter five, verse one. Since we have been justified, we have peace with God. Through who? Through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. We stand justified before God. We stand having peace with God through Christ. He gives full pardon for our sin. So he takes care of that that weight of our sin up there. He carried it. And not only does he give full pardon for our sin, but we've still got this complete, utter, total, absolute inability to obey God. What does he do about that? Jesus gives us his complete ability to obey God. Jesus gives us his complete ability to obey God. Now this is where I want you to hear these words. They are so powerful. Take my yoke upon you. Join in my yoke and learn from me. That word learn, you might circle it as the same word. You might put a note over in Matthew chapter 28 verse 19 when it says make disciples. That word disciples, same word right here. Basically learn from me how to be my disciple. So take my yoke upon me and learn from me. I'm gentle and humble of heart. Listen to this. And you'll find rest for your souls. Now that is so interesting when you really think about it. Jesus just said, you learn from me how to follow me. Now this is not just sitting back passively here in a yoke. This is working. You're following after him. But he says, it's the kind of work that brings rest for your souls. How does that work? This is the only religious teacher in the history of the world who has, it's the only teacher at all who's equated learning with rest and following with rest and relief. I mean, how many students who started back to school over the last few weeks would say, I just, I feel so rested as a result of starting school. My mind is rested. I'm just relieved. My life, I just feel such peace because of school, because I'm learning no, absolutely not. I was, I was preaching in a seminary this past week, and I was walking on campus, and I saw guys that were studying Hebrew flashcards. And rest was nowhere near the picture. No rest whatsoever in sight as they tried to recite back the cards. I, I remember when... Uh, when I finished up my Ph.D. and I had gone to Heather's class where she taught these four- and five-year-olds, and I was sitting down in front of them, and Heather had kind of walked to the side of the room, and I was sitting there, just me and the kids, and I looked at them, and I said, I don't want you guys to take this the wrong way, but I feel sorry for all of you. <laughs> I said, you've got 20-plus years ahead of you and this. I would not trade. And about that time, Heather comes up. She's like, what are you saying, Dave? Just uh, sorry, sorry. Yeah. Just a little bitter now. Jesus says, learn from me, be my disciple, and you'll find rest. How can that be? Here's how it is. Here's how it works. You come into the yoke with Christ 
And it's no longer about you straining to live the Christian life. The beauty of the way the yoke works is the more you relax, the more the stronger ox is able to take you where the yoke goes. You follow him and you find great rest. And the whole Christian life, don't miss this, is intended to be not straining more and more and more with every passing day. It's resting more and more with every passing day in that which only Christ can do through you. Christ gives us his complete ability to obey God. Don't miss it. Jesus is not giving us. And this is why he's separate from religious teachers, any teachers that don't equate learning with rest. Because Jesus has not said, here's your list of rules, regulations, and commands to follow. Now go do it, and hopefully you'll do them well and please my Father. That's the kind of Christianity we've created, and it's not biblical. What he does is he doesn't say, here's the list of rules and regulations and commands. You follow them. Instead, he says, you come to me. You see it repeated over and over again, the personal pronoun. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened. I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. I'm gentle. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. You come to me, and I will enable you. I will empower you to obey all of those commands and all of those laws. I will do the work for you, in you, through you. Jesus does that. That's what he's committed to do. Because we can't do it. The beauty of the Christian life is he does it in us and through us. And now, like we were talking about earlier, we're not free from the law. Not, okay, so I guess God's commands don't matter to me anymore because I don't have to live according to law. No, we're free to obey the law and all the beauty that God has designed in his commands for our lives. We are free to obey, fulfilled to obey, enabled to obey so that we experience his everlasting joy in following his will. And he does it all through us. It's all by grace. Don't forget. Don't forget. Every single thing you do as a follower of Christ, every thought you think, every little prayer you pray over a meal, everything is grounded in the grace of Christ. Everything. Not one thing we do. We're intended to do of the flesh of works. We're intended to do it all by grace. Remember, how were you saved? How did you come to Christ? You came by grace through faith, right? Ephesians 2, 8, 9. For it's by grace we've been saved through faith. Not from ourselves. It's the gift of God. Not by works that no one can boast. What do you mean no one can boast? Yeah, God's designed it so that he gives grace and he gets glory. We're saved by grace through faith. Now here's the danger. What we do is we think, okay, yeah, I'm with you, Dave. I'm saved by grace through faith. But then once we're saved, we've got this idea that now we walk away and we've got to live out this deal. We're saved by grace through faith. Ladies and gentlemen, the only way you can live out this deal is by grace through faith. By grace. His sustaining grace every single moment of our lives through faith, coming to him, trusting in him, resting in him, abiding in him every single moment of our lives by grace through faith. We live the Christian life today by grace through faith, not of works so that no one can boast because the one who gives the grace gets the glory. We live by grace through faith. The one, don't miss it, the one who calls you to live a righteous life is the one who lives that righteous life through you. The one who calls you to proclaim the gospel to the nations is the one who preaches the gospel to the nations through you. 
The one who called you is faithful, and he will do it. He's the one who does it. This is the beauty. He gives us his complete ability to obey God. It's exactly. And these verses, verse 25 through 27, they're so loaded. That's why we just couldn't get into them for sake of time. But he said earlier, just to make allusion, he says, Father, you have hidden these things from the wise and learned, and you have revealed them to little children. What does that mean? Isn't this the truth we see all over the New Testament? It's not the wise, but the foolish. Not the wise in the world, but the foolish things of the world that God calls to himself, the poor in spirit. Isn't that a little depressing for us that we're the, we're the foolish things of the world? That's what qualified us to being part of this picture? That we're like little children and all the smart people are out there? No. The picture's not if you're smart and you can't follow Jesus. The picture is if you're trusting in yourself, if you're trusting in what you bring to the table, can't follow Jesus when you come as a little child, little Caleb who, little guys, has traveled. Just think about it. Little children, little guys traveled all over the world in his few short months. And even since coming back to Birmingham, he's traveled all over the United States and all over the city. He can hardly walk. How? Can he travel all over the world? How can he travel all over this city? How can he travel all over this country? Because his mother and father are carrying him wherever he goes. And he is a hoss. He is heavy. <laughs> and we're carrying him wherever he goes. Ladies and gentlemen, do not underestimate the amount of baggage each one of us brings to the Father. And how he picks each and every one of us up. And he carries us in his arms. This is the picture of the Christian life. Everywhere God takes us, he takes us through Christ. His ability to please him. Because the beauty of it is when Christ is filling us and Christ is living his righteousness through us and Christ is living his holiness through us and Christ is enabling us to think and to act and behave and all the things that Christian life was intended to be, these laws Christ is doing in us and through us, then our lives do bring great pleasure to God, not because of all that we've done, but because of Christ in us, his grace through faith in us, and God is God has given great glory when Christ, his son, is at the rightful place, at the center of each one of our lives, enabling and equipping us. Do you see how Christ gets great glory from that and how we rob Christ of that glory when we try to live the Christian life on our own? He gives us his ability to obey God. And the result not just peace with God, but the result is the peace of God. There's a difference there. It's kind of a play on words, but I think it's a play on words that we see in Matthew 11, 28 through 30. Because he says rest twice. First time I will give you rest in verse 28. We talked about peace with God. Literally, the word there means relief, a sigh of relief. Resting in his love. But then he says later, you will find rest for your souls. And that picture right there is the Hebrew shalom, peace. This existential, eternal, indwelling peace. That Jesus says he's designed for every one of us. Don't miss this. 
Jesus has designed for each and every one of us to obey him to the full, but him doing the work through us so that we have great peace in our hearts and we're not running from one thing to the next trying to figure out how to do all this stuff on our own. We've given that up and we're saying, Christ, if these plates are going to be in the air, it's only going to be by your glory and your strength which you alone can supply. That brings great peace to our hearts. Hudson Taylor was a missionary to China. He, on his biography, Hudson Taylor's Spiritual Secret, great biography, and the spiritual secret is exactly what we're talking about this week and next. Listen to what his biographer talked about when Hudson Taylor came to this realization. Listen to this. He was a joyous man now, a bright, happy Christian. He had been a toiling, burdened one before with not much rest of soul. It was rest in Jesus now and letting him do the work which makes all the difference. Whenever he spoke in meetings after that point, a new power seemed to flow from him. And in the practical things of life, a new peace possessed him. How is his faith strengthened? Listen to this. How is his faith strengthened? Not by striving after faith, but by resting on the faithful one. Christian life, not intended to be striving after faith, but intended to be a rest in the faithful. Well, thanks for joining us today on Radical with David Platt. If you'd like to watch this full sermon or download the free discussion questions, you can do all that and more at our website, Radical.net. There you can also find additional sermons, articles, and other resources on the topics of spiritual growth, lordship, and obedience, and other related topics to today's sermon. That's all for today's episode, but catch us next week for The Disciples Identity Part 2, Christ in you. Well, I'm your host, Thomas Bowen, and until next time, join us there at Radical.net.